Welcome to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. My name is Kimberly Simpkins, and this show is about my family's amazing journey of navigating mental illness and marriage and much more. Psalm 66:12 says, You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. My goal is to share our story of the many challenges our family has experienced while living in the shadow of my husband's bipolar 1 diagnosis, and how we were miraculously brought to a place of safety by Jesus' mighty hand. I hope to encourage those who are walking alongside a spouse or partner with mental illness while also growing in faith and devotion to the Lord. Even if you're not a person of faith, I think you will still be encouraged by our story, especially if you or a loved one struggle with mental illness. Special thank you to my husband, Scott, for his support and permission to share the story as well as allowing me to use one of his original compositions performed by yours truly on violin and a wonderful colleague on piano. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. I've never done anything like this before, so this is all new territory for me. But I thank you for tuning in. I'm just trying to imagine you, my listener, as a friend with whom I'm sharing a good story. A story that's still being written, actually. I've got some notes here with me. I wrote some things down and I'll try to talk to you as if I'm not reading. It'll take a few episodes to unfold and bring you up to speed to the present day. There's no way that I can share every little detail about 22 years of marriage. It's just too much. But I'll try to hit the highlights, significant events, joys and sorrows, challenges and triumphs, and how mental illness has played a huge part. So first things first, a little background. My journey to my husband, Scott, actually started for me in the fifth grade. That's when I learned how to play the violin through our school orchestra program. So shout out to all school orchestra programs. They do work. I loved it so much. I played violin all through my school years and I went on to major in violin performance in college where I came to a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. One day in church, I heard a sermon about missions where the speaker talked about using our gifts and talents on the mission field. My heart was stirred. Could God be speaking to me? Hmm, how in the world would I use the violin on the mission field? Well, God was indeed speaking to me, because not too long after that, there was a curious poster in the music building. In this poster, there was this man who was dressed like he was about to go on a safari adventure. He had a pith helmet, the shorts, the foliage behind him, everything. But he also had a cello. And the heading said, So, you want to be a missionary? but you play the cello. It was about information for an interest meeting to hear all about the singing group who traveled all over the world with a small orchestra using music as a tool to share the gospel. I went to the meeting and heard all kinds of stories about the lives touched all over the world, all through music, especially in closed countries, because they were a music group they could get into countries that were traditionally close to the gospel. I was hooked. Long story short, I joined that summer. It was the summer before my senior year, and my team went all over the United States and Iceland doing concerts and sharing the gospel, staying in host homes, meeting all kinds of people. I loved it. 
I loved it so much that ultimately I ended up with this ministry full-time and spent a total of about five years with them. Music allowed us into parts of the world that were traditionally closed to the gospel. Communist countries, Muslim countries, Hindu nations, we were welcome to share our music, which just so happened to contain a strong gospel message. Maybe we couldn't preach about Jesus, but we could sing about him. Other times, we worked with the Christians in those areas who arranged the concerts. People could hear some uplifting music, and they were welcome to receive prayer, chat with us, and ask questions about our faith. Some people even came to faith in Jesus Christ through our music and testimony. All together with this group, I ultimately traveled to 30 countries, 46 states, Puerto Rico, and all 10 Canadian provinces. That was over the course of about several years, about five years total. There's so much I could share about my time with this group, but suffice it to say, I loved it there, and I spent a good chunk of my 20s with this group. We didn't receive a salary, but like all missionaries, we had to raise support. That was challenging for me, but I saw God provide in amazing ways, laying a foundation for my faith that I would definitely need later. He didn't just provide financially. This group has given me lifelong friends, a love and appreciation for the peoples of the world, and a deep respect for the power of music to bring unity, peace, and comfort across denominations, cultures, and even religions. So music is truly an international language. In the summer of 1998, our team was in need of a drummer. We were at rehearsal camp at a Greek Orthodox retreat center in Dunlap, California, not far from the ministry's base in the Central Valley. Rehearsal camp was a time set aside before each tour to practice our music and build our playlist as well as prepare our hearts for the upcoming outreach. My team's rehearsal was in a barn that had been converted into a chapel of sorts. One day, in walked Scott Simpkins from Tennessee. He joined our team as the drummer for that summer tour and we struck up a friendship. At that first meeting in the barn, he seemed to me like a man that had not gotten out much and was excited to be free. It was almost a look of wide-eyed wonder. I found it endearing and sweet. One day on the bus, a scripture came to me that seemed to describe Scott perfectly. In John 1:47, Jesus sees Nathanael approaching him and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Scott had no guile. Some Bible versions use the word deceit. In the New Living Translation, Jesus says, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. In that encounter with Jesus and Nathanael, Nathanael asked Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus says to Nathanael, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus saw Nathanael, and that moved Nathanael enough to know in his heart that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Somehow, I knew in my own heart that Jesus saw Scott and had his hand on him. It was kind of like, the Holy Spirit is strong with that one. When our fall tour started that September, our friendship deepened. Early on, Scott disclosed to me that he had bipolar disorder, so part of his testimony was that he became born again at the age of 16 in the parking lot of his high school on August 21st, 1987. God had been drawing him, and he knew that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, so he gave his life to Christ and became born again. Not long after that, his family noticed a change in his behavior. By that fall, there was clearly something wrong, so one morning, instead of his parents taking him to school, they took him to a hospital where he ended up spending four months. At first, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, 
And he says that the medications they put him on made him feel like a zombie. But then after four months at his first hospital, he was put into another hospital where he was diagnosed as having bipolar one. The second hospital got his medications right and he was finally balanced enough to be released. However, by that time, he had lost almost all of his junior year in high school and ended up getting his GED. By the time we met, he had been working in various jobs, but Scott had dreams. He had ideas. He had a heart for the Lord. He had gifts in music, having started playing the drums in school. He had been through a lot due to the bipolar disorder, but he didn't let that stop him. The music ministry gave him a wonderful opportunity to use his gifts for the Lord. One thing I really appreciated about Scott was that he loved the Bible. The Bible had come to mean a great deal to him while he was hospitalized. Somewhere along the way, he was introduced to the Alexander Scorby recording of the King James Bible. If you haven't heard these recordings, you should have a listen because they are pure poetry. Alexander Scorby's rich baritone British voice and diction really makes the Bible come alive. You don't even care that it's King James English. I think he was a Shakespearean actor, so that kind of makes sense. Through listening to these recordings repeatedly, Scott was able to commit long passages of the Bible to memory. He says that's what got him through those dark times in the hospital. Yes, it was fair to say I liked Scott. He was indeed genuine. No guile. We had such a great, easy, natural friendship. He was a little quirky and a bit of an enigma to some of our teammates, but I liked the mystery. Scott was like a puzzle waiting to be solved, and, well, I guess I like puzzles. He was with our team for about six months in 1998. And then at the beginning of 1999, our team was scheduled to do an extended outreach for three months overseas to Africa and Lebanon. Scott actually wasn't sure he could do the extended three-month outreach with us because his insurance only covered monthly prescriptions, and shipping those overseas would prove to be problematic. When we were stateside, his mom would ship him his medications to him on the road, but for the overseas outreach, he would need a 90-day prescription that the insurance wouldn't cover. Well, God did a miracle. Somehow, he was able to get that 90-day script, which was a sign to him that God wanted him to go. As it turned out, that three-month outreach to Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, as well as the Middle Eastern country of Lebanon, it changed both of our lives forever. It was clear that there was something special happening between us that was too big to ignore. We were falling in love. Somewhere in the middle of our outreach in Rwanda, Scott and I got engaged. By the time we went to Lebanon, we were planning our wedding. All of this, mind you, was in an environment where technically we weren't even allowed to date. It was against the ministry rules to form and pursue romantic relationships while on tour. And yet... Somehow it happened because I can think of at least a dozen, other, a dozen other couples who also met and married the same way. In a way, I think the unusual circumstances of our environment made those relationships stronger. Scott was a pleasant surprise, and it was easy for me to see that he was something special. I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew about bipolar disorder as I would come to find out, but I knew that I wanted to marry Scott and that we were meant to be. As we prepared to leave the ministry for good to start our new life, Scott gave me a warning. He said, Kimberly, I have to tell you something. My family is weird. Like me, Scott was the baby of the family with a significant age difference between us and our oldest siblings. However, that's about where our similarities ended. 
our families couldn't be any more different. Of course, there was the fact that he was a white guy raised in Tennessee, and I was a black woman from North Carolina. My parents were divorced when I was young, and in fact, my father had passed away while we were on tour. His parents had been married for decades, and they were still together. My family valued higher education, but Scott's family were more working class, and neither he nor any of his siblings were encouraged to pursue college, which was interesting. Scott's dad was highly intelligent and self-taught. He had designed a beautiful home that he built himself brick by brick, teaching himself every aspect of the building, of architecture, wiring, and landscaping. All of this while he was maintaining a job with a telephone company and raising children. His parents were super frugal, and they believed in living debt-free. Scott's mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my mom was a single mom who worked full-time and could barely make ends meet. It was a wonder that I had the success that I had on the violin, considering I never had real private lessons until I was in college. My mother made great sacrifices just to get me a violin. I had to wear my big sister's hand-me-downs. Scott's family went on vacations. They had even gone to Disney World when he was little. To me, it seemed like Scott had it made in the shade in his childhood. They lived in the wealthiest area of town, and he had his own car when he was in high school. When he was sick, his parents seemed to seek out help, so they must have cared about him. And then, Scott had never even heard of a ramen noodle until after we got married. How bad could things be? And yet, he confided into me that his family was weird and that being the youngest, he felt neglected and overlooked often in his household. When he wasn't being ignored, he was the one that always got in trouble and got more whippings than any other of his siblings combined. Scotty, as his siblings called him, was a stinker. Scott's mental health issues had presented a challenge for his family, so I thought, hmm, maybe whatever Scott's feeling, it's, come, it's coming from that. Or worse, maybe they're racist and Scott just didn't want to tell me. Well, then I met them. The best word to describe Scott's parents would be eccentric. They claimed to be Christians, but his mom had a Christian science background, so she was really into natural health and alternative medicine. Some of their Christian beliefs were kind of unusual. They didn't really attend church, but they had Bible studies in their home with small groups of friends. Scott's dad had even written a book. At the time, there was this huge surge in books about Bible codes and uncovering secret messages in the Bible. Well, Scott's dad has own theories on the Bible codes, and he wrote a book that uncovered the, quote, secrets of the Bible. But it was their worldview that was the most striking thing about Scott's parents. At this time in my young life, I had never heard of the New World Order or the Illuminati, but all of that was about to change. That was Scott's parents' favorite subject. They loved to talk about how the world was not as it presented itself to be, but they knew the real truth. We never went to the moon. It was an elaborate hoax staged by the government. The government was not really the government. Nope, they were these shadowy elites who were really running things. Look at the money. There's the all-seeing eye. It's really the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergers that run the country. Presidents are pawns. Billy Graham was really part of the Illuminati. I learned about the Bohemian Grove and some secret party that took place in front of a statue of a big owl that world elites worshipped and that represented the god Moloch. The Queen of England was a reptilian, and the Pope was really a front man for, quote, the Black Pope, who really runs the Catholic Church. 
they were ready for doomsday. On their 15 acres of land in that house that Scott's dad designed and built from the ground up, they would be able to sustain themselves in the event of martial law overtaking the land. There was a reason for things happening at certain times. Columbine, Waco, and the the Oklahoma City bombing all happened around the same time in April, or near Hitler's birthday. And along with the money, the all-seeing eye was embedded in the symbols for CBS, Time Warner, and all these other companies, along with all manner of occult symbols in our society. Mysterious people only referred to as they are really running the world, and we know the truth, according to Scott's parents. There was some family drama as well. While Scott was on the road with us, a sibling had had some pretty horrible flashbacks to some incidents in childhood involving some extended family. The family took the sibling's side and cut off communication with an entire portion of that side of the family. So, this is what I stepped into when I married Scott. In private, he would express doubts to me as to whether his parents were really Christians. I don't see any fruit, he would say. His parents weren't the only ones he had his doubts about. His entire family baffled him. I mean, I guess I could see what he meant. They were definitely different and most definitely dysfunctional. And who knows, maybe there was some undiagnosed mental health issues there too. But they were his family and they were soon to be my family. For all their strangeness, they seemed harmless. And either they were really good at hiding racist vibes or they didn't have any because they welcomed me into the family with no reservations that I could see. I did kind of wonder if some of Scott's mental health issues originated in his childhood, considering that his family's different ways of seeing the world. But, you know, I didn't have any proof or anything. So I just went along and everything was good. They accepted me and that was that. Meanwhile, the summer before we got married, God did some amazing things. At that time, I had been on the road for five years. When most adults my age, around 27, 28, were starting jobs and careers and even families, I was basically starting from scratch. Scott, too, since he had set things aside to come on the road. We needed to figure out how we were going to live and how we were going to support ourselves. I went to visit Scott to meet his family, and it was decided that we would settle in his hometown. Once we made that decision, things came together just like that. I found myself with a car, a job, and an apartment within days. Scott was able to get his old job back. I had a thought. Surely a city the size of Scott's has a symphony orchestra, right? I looked them up in the phone book. Yeah, the phone book. And on a whim, I sent them my resume. Next thing I know, they're asking me to sub for their July 4th concert. I meet all these nice musicians who welcomed me warmly, and they were like, oh, you should audition, and you could teach. Hmm. I had never auditioned for a professional orchestra, and I wasn't exactly on top of my game musically. The music we played in the group, at least for us classically trained violinists, it really wasn't all that difficult. How in the world was I going to get ready for an audition? No worries. One of the violinists offered to coach me and get me ready for the audition at no cost. There was a position teaching private violin lessons at an area school, and just like that, I was hired. And... I won the audition. As for Scott, he was working at his job when one day a customer came in from a cell phone company. Somehow they got to talking and he found out that they were having a job fair. He went and got hired as a customer service rep, just like that. We even found a pastor who was willing to do some premarital counseling for us and officiate our wedding. 
Interestingly enough, the issue of dealing with mental illness never really came up. I didn't think much of it at the time, but in future years, I would come to learn that the church is overwhelmingly inadequate in handling mental health issues, unfortunately. In my naivete, I figured as long as he takes his medication and sees his psychiatrist, we're good to go. And perhaps in an ideal world, that would be all it would take. But I would come to learn that it's just not that simple. Anyway, we went from basically having nothing coming off the mission field to suddenly having everything we needed to start our new life. It was clear to me that God was with us. So September 11th, 1999, we got married. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our story so far, and I hope that you will be back and see how everything unfolds. I thank you for tuning in to my very first ever podcast episode, and I'm hoping that you'll be back. So in the next episode, Scott and I get married and we start our new lives. Our first few years are filled with the ups and downs of being newlyweds, literally. Scott has his first post-marriage bipolar episode and I get a reality check on just exactly how challenging mental illness can be. We also welcome the birth of our daughter Jasmine and settle into life as a family of three. So I hope you'll join us to see how that turned out. Thank you for tuning in to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. You can find out more information about us along with some helpful resources by visiting my website at www.simpkinsfamilychronicles.com. Be sure to subscribe to my email list for updates and follow me on Facebook and Instagram under Simpkins Family Chronicles. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, the adventure continues.